Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the Honest Field Guide podcast, a weekly show dedicated to winning in entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Ginger Birkenbuehl. I'm the CEO of Burke Creative, a leadership, brand strategy, and visual identity agency dedicated to helping scale brands and assist with their adaptability with the market. On my show, you get to eavesdrop in on intimate conversation with business leaders and inspired entrepreneurs designed to give you tips and strategies so your own business can thrive. Subscribe and join me each week for laughter, inspiration, and honest stories. Everybody, welcome back to my show, The Honest Field Guide Podcast. I am Ginger Birkenbuehl, your host and founder. I just want to say thank you so much for coming to my show. You could be anywhere in the world online, but you're choosing to listen and subscribe to my show. So I want to thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe to my show on Apple Podcasts, or you can listen right from your browser on Google Podcasts by searching The Honest Field Guide. Please share my podcast with your friends as well. The more people that hear my show, the better for my guests. So here's the thing. Last time I ran my podcast, I promised that I wasn't going to turn my show into an NFT podcast. I said I wasn't going to do it, but here's the deal. This is such an exciting space right now. It's absolutely incredible. It's epic what's happening with NFTs, with the metaverse, with blockchain, things like that. It's really exciting. But here's the thing. This one is a very special show for me because I'm speaking with a leader in the creative technology space and her mission aligns with my own career goals, which is to do everything possible while I have the wheel to help more women become aware of the opportunities to make their own money and to get on the path of financial independence. This is a really long, long, long and hard path for us. It's filled with so many roadblocks. In particular, how can women get funding and how can women make money not exclusively, but independently of male-created structures. How do we do this? I'm not saying we don't want money from male-created structures, but how do we do things on our own? We're in a new world, and right now the world is filled with so many possibilities. We're creating things for the first time on our own, and this world is powered by the blockchain. If you don't know what blockchain is, just please go to Google and type in, what is the blockchain? Go take a look at this for your own education, doing your own research and understanding what we're involved with. But here's the thing. Speaking of a new world, my guest today is Michelle Reeves, and she is the co-founder and CEO of Mabion.world, a fashion and NFT marketplace, one of the first NFTs that connects physical and digital fashion assets. Michelle has spent the past 15 years as an investor serial entrepreneur, and most recently became a founding member of BFF and founder of at W-A-G-M-I dot N-F-T. Again, that's at 
W-A-G-M-I.NFT. Michelle is deeply passionate about educating and onboarding an all-inclusive community into Web3 with a particular focus on helping women learn about NFTs and highlighting vetted female-led missions. I've said this before, NFTs are definitely controversial and complex to some, but they are the keys to the universe to others. People are making millions of dollars off NFTs. So we're going to learn today from Michelle about what is actually going on. But first, we're going to find out how she built her platform and community and why and what bridges she's building for women to reach the other side of financial independence, a place of incredible, incredible passion for me. So Michelle, welcome to my show, The Honest Bill Guide Podcast. Ginger, so great to chat with you today. Thank you so much for having me on here. You know, just hearing your podcast and seeing how much you do to always widen that circle for women and for a diverse community of people who are curious to grow and learn is just so exciting. So thank you. Well, thank you so much. Now, I know that you are in the middle of a natural... (laughs) disaster right now. Can you talk a little bit about that so that our audience can understand what you're actually dealing with in the middle of the other exciting things happening that we're going to get to later in the podcast? Oh, of course. Well, I think, you know, just life throws some curveballs at all hours of the day. I'm in Brisbane, Australia. So I'm actually coming to you from the future. I'm already a day ahead of you. And here in Brisbane, we've had a week of torrential storms. And so there is some pretty horrible flooding that's been going on. I'm very grateful our family is safe. Our house has definitely taken quite a beating. We've had some flooding, but we will recover. However, there are some families who have really lost everything and their entire homes have floated away. So there's a lot going on, but yeah, grateful to be here and be as safe as we are. Fantastic. I'm really glad to hear that. So it's quite an interesting time what we're dealing with right now between what's happening with you in Australia and we are in the middle of some pretty massive historical consequences happening in Ukraine. And, you know, we're not going to spend the time today talking about that in this podcast, but I want to start this conversation about your origin story. I always like to understand, especially when I'm talking to women in business, how did you grow up as a young girl? I mean, were you involved in fashion? How did it manifest? What did your parents do? Like, how did you actually start off with this? Or did you start off as a math whiz, (laughs) and you were like, you know, doing scientific experiments. I mean, please talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) The good news is you don't have to be a math whiz to get into the space or any space, really. So everybody, it's okay. (laughs) Um, No, I, I think I was very just curious. You know, I grew up in a very small town outside of Brisbane, Australia, and we definitely didn't have you know, the latest, fanciest computers. In fact, I didn't have a computer until I was in high school. And even then, of course, it was a terrible, clunky, you know, old secondhand computer. I think curiosity is the seed for all greatness. It's okay if you're not the smartest at school, the most academic. You don't have to be those things, but you have to be curious and hungry to solve problems and to look for new answers and discover better ways to do things that we already do. And I think with that at my core, I've just always endeavored into a career of wanting to do new things. And I gravitated towards industries that were 
agile and wanted to adapt. And so my earliest career was actually in sports and entertainment. I had aspirations when I was 16 that I would one day own Manchester United. And by the time I was 20, I was going to own a big media company. And then in my 20s, it was very much about creating a tech empire where you know we could travel and create opportunities for everyone to connect to some part of the world, even if you couldn't get there yourself. And I think that all stemmed from my own physical place, you know, being in Australia and being curious about the world. Here I am in a small town, but I'm seeing what's happening in Paris or Japan or across America. And I think that hunger just always existed right from the beginning. And what about your parents? Was your mother a career woman? Because you're talking about thinking about being a CEO from a very young age. Did she instill in you the value of curiosity? Was it your father? Where did this come from? What's the foundation of your openness to new things? I love that you asked about my mother. I always say my mom was born in the wrong year. She should have been born now and she would be the most incredible CEO. She is so strong. She was not a CEO herself. She, I think, had a very limited education. She joined the Navy when she was just a teenager because she did not have the stable foundation of a home or the ability to learn, as I think we all take for granted today. And so she had to, very early on, find her strength and take care of herself. And to think about being a teen and joining the Navy is just extraordinary to me. And you know, moving into a whole new path of life and structure. She built that for herself and became very resilient at such a young age. And that's actually where she met my father. He was also in the Navy. And, you know, I think the two of them pioneered a path that was unique and not like anybody else. My father went to university when he was 30 and he became an engineer later and, you know, when I was two, apparently I was there at his university graduation, you know, so doing things the non-traditional way and building the life that they wanted when they had the ability to. We didn't grow up with a lot of money. You know, we were always safe. We were always secure. There was always, of course, food on the table. We weren't, you know, destitute, but it was always a struggle. And I think with that as a foundation, it just instills this thing in your DNA that you can't ever remove to always build and grow and absorb as much as you can in this journey of learning. You know, I love that story. You said both of your parents were military people. And when I think of military, I think of a lot of structure and format and organization and rules. However, when I see you, while I appreciate the extraordinary care you've taken to educate and teach people, especially women, about the NFT Web3 space. I'm trying to understand the bridge that you went from the extreme structure of a military family, because my father was also a military person, to being a more divergent thinker and a person that's open to alternative ways of making money. Like, where did that come from? Did you go to a traditional elementary school? Were you homeschooled or where you just sort of let loose, like, you know, Lord of the Flies, wild in Australia, you know, <laughs> building your own, you know, fortresses. I mean, what happened? So you're right. I definitely grew up with structure and process, but I think you can apply that in different ways. So for us, structure and process was always learn, always be hungry for more, always do better. You know, it wasn't a structure and a process to keep repeating the same behavior. It was a structure and process to be consistently pushing yourself. And that's what I do. I'm 
always pushing myself. How do I think faster, act smarter, whatever it is, it's consistent from their training, actually. They're training to be a creative problem solver consistently. And I'm kind of obsessed with personality tests as well. And for any personality, no matter how you archetype them, there are different paths that it can go on. So for example, this is crazy, but bear with me. The same personality that Gandhi was is the same personality that serial killers are. Because they have this, it is, it's crazy. Never heard that in my life. Because you have this greatness, this obsession to do something to the extreme. But you then have the choice. Are you doing something to the extreme to help as many people or to hurt as many people? It's the same personality type. And so I think it's the same kind of notion that applies here. The personality training of consistency and meticulous order but in a creative way. I guess I can kind of see that depending on where you were interrupted in your life, you definitely could turn into a really, really bad seed or you can turn into a force for good. I mean, I can absolutely see that. Um, Moving into your next phase after you were a very young child, Did you go to college? Were you at university? Did you study fashion or were you in business? Like what was happening that moved you through your higher education spaces, if you even did that? I did. I went to university and I think it's worth noting that university here is not prohibitively expensive as it is in some other countries. You mean like here in America? (laughs) (laughs) It is. I mean, it's a real issue. It's a real, yeah, it's a nightmare. I mean, I'm just going to be honest. I lived in the U.S. for 20 years. Both my children were born in New York City. And I remember thinking the day they were born, oh, my God, we got to save for college. You know, like that's that's a real thing. I mean, that's literally (laughs) a career making decision, right? When you know that you've got to save money for college, it directly and potentially negatively impacts your decision on what you want to do with the rest of your life after you have a child. Absolutely. I did go to college. I went to university here in Australia. And I studied business communications and marketing. I really focused on sports marketing because I wanted to, as I said, you know, own Manchester United one day. And I figured that would be a wise choice to get that started and start learning about the sports industry. I also have a brother who was a professional athlete. He was a soccer player who played for Australia and growing up saw, you know, a lot of, you know, behind the scenes in that world with agents and sponsors, you know, coming after my younger but taller brother. And, you know, I just was really fascinated by the sports business. Where did you start getting a sense of yourself and what you were interested in? And also, where did the fashion piece sort of stop in? Or did that kind of come to you later in life? So I wish somebody had told me when I was 12 and working on my school class project, uh, I built a fashion magazine as our class project and I did fashion shoots in my garden with my girlfriends and I did their makeup and we did their hair and I loved it. But it was never told or talked to me that that could be an actual career. That was such a small like slice of the world down here. Australia just loves sports. We really promote and reward the kings of sport. And I say kings, not queens, because it's very male focused here. And so I didn't think I knew that I could have a serious career in fashion. I knew I wanted a serious career 
So it made sense to me in my young mind that if I wanted to be serious in business, what are the big business industries here? Ah, sports. And I loved it. I I enjoyed sports. I loved it. And I had this insider view through my brother's world too, that I had a whole different, fresh angle and perspective to learn from that I was really grateful for. But yeah, I didn't know that fashion was an option to me. And to be honest, it wasn't until I think I was living in New York and maybe in my late 20s, early 30s that I realized, wait, this fashion thing is huge. (laughs) It's an entire industry. Well, you went to the right place. I mean, there's no doubt New York is the central driving force, right, of fashion. So it's perfect. How did you get to New York? Really for sports. I was working for a big sports agency and I knew that Australia was great, but, you know, it's a limited market here. And I thought, you know, the next step was either London or New York. And I was able to get a transfer to New York. So I packed up a suitcase. I had one friend who lived in New York and I slept on their couch for a couple of weeks until I could find a terrible six-story walk-up that I could barely afford. <laughs> and I then love 10 New York. days later, September 11 <laughs> happened. Oh, wow. That was, wow. That was then. That oh was my then. goodness. And for everyone, it, it shifted the earth from under us, literally. I will say it really connected me to New York and this community of new friends that I had just kind of met for a week. And now I will never not love New York. It's a part of my soul. I had no idea that you were there then. That just takes my breath away. Everybody remembers where they were during 9-11. And so how long were you in New York? And is this also where you met your husband? Or was this way before that? I mean, what was your life like after 9-11? And when did the actual drop into fashion take place? I asked because first of all, New York to me is my passion place. I have three children and as much as I love New York, I can't actually afford to live there. I live vicariously through people that dress like New York. They talk like New York. And I just, I love the city. It's so full of passion and energy and it's so full of creativity. I mean, everybody there is making something or building something. Were you picking up on that or was it hard to because you were in the middle of an absolute crisis and did it create any sense of urgency within you to become something different? Yes, all of those things. I think I just knew that there would be great change and to allow that to happen. You know, I don't think prescribing, I've got to do this, kind of really kicked in. I came over for a career in sports, but to also understand what is this bigger landscape called the world really about? And I think meeting as many people, learning as many things, traveling into so many corners of the U.S. I was in New York for a couple of years. I got married to someone who was living in San Francisco. So I moved to San Francisco for a number of years. Great experience. Not a great marriage. (laughs) That marriage did end in divorce. We did not have any children. So that was, you know, divorce is still hard, but much easier to untangle when it's just the two individuals. And That pretty much took me the next nine years. I learned more about myself then, and I got to almost now live in the U.S. again. Like, okay, now I'm not Michelle married to this person. I'm Michelle who's starting a whole new chapter of my life, and I moved to L.A. And L.A. is my happy place. I mean, I never used to sing. I got to tell you, Ginger, I would mouth happy birthday. I was so ashamed of my bad singing voice that I would not want to ruin somebody's birthday by singing the song. And I got to LA and I was just so happy in that 
I don't know, the air, the sunshine. I can't even describe what it is. Maybe it was also just the timing of the chapter in my life at that moment. But I started singing. I would sing in the car. I would sing walking down the street along Third Street. Wow. I was just this weirdo <laughs> singing. All I mean, the you're time. just like the hills are alive with uh, the sound <laughs> yes. of music or something. Yes. <laughs> Julie I, Andrews. <laughs> I mean, La La Land is now my favorite movie. I mean, I, I'm like, I feel like that movie was made for me, just singing through the hills of, you know, Runyon Canyon. And that's when I was like, all right, I'm done with sports. What a great experience. I've met so many people. The sports entertainment mix was fantastic. I'm hungry for more. And I actually started my first business, which is going to shock you when I tell you what this is, because it's not in fashion, but again, had the underpinnings of fashion. Uh, I started a wine company and I created the world's first touch trademark. It was a leather label. So clearly this like- A leather label? Wow. This 12-year-old inside of me who just wanted to go and create a fashion magazine is like, well, if I can't do fashion still, I'll do wine, which I was really passionate about. And I wanted to reinvent an industry that I thought was really shut off to women and had not innovated in so long. And I created the Touch Trademark with this hand-embossed, hand-cut leather label to create something beautiful to represent the soul of what was inside the bottle as well. As I listen to you, it's just really beautiful because first of all, you were walking through the shadow of divorce for a long time, which, you know, I do know with women, it's tough to release an identity that has been associated with you for such a long time and being independent. And that's why I wanted to talk to you because I feel like you represent multiple paths to independence, but the concept of being a fully independent woman without a partner, a male partner in the world, it's a tough place to be you know, it's a tough place. I know many women that have gone through divorce and they've lost their entire identity and they've never been able to come back from it. You have though, you've come back from it and you came back from it and be, and, and, you know, emerged as a singing Australian (laughs) in LA, which is amazing. So during that time, you're saying that you were not fully moving into fashion at that point, but you still bring up this fashion magazine at 12 years old and you started a wine company with a fascinating label, a leather label with embossing and things on it. When you launched your wine company, you fully went into a creative artistic space. I mean, not just marketing, but you were an artist. Did you know at the time? Did you have a name for it? Did you attach that to your thinking? No, never. I have never thought of myself as an artist or creative ever. I mean, I just have to unpack this a little bit. So one of the things that I know for a lot of entrepreneurs is they really do diminish or don't recognize, refuse to recognize, or maybe it comes from childhood where they don't acknowledge that they're actually deep down, they are actually an artist. Because I think the definition of artist really looks like somebody who paints and draws, you know, somebody who makes something and puts it on a wall. But the reality is, Michelle, what you're telling me is you're describing the path of an artist that doesn't recognize you're an artist, but keeps going anyway. And you created this amazing company. What was the company called that you created the wine company? It's called David Family. I named it after my father, David, and my small but close family. Oh my goodness. I just love it. So, okay. So you made this wine company. You had this beautiful label. I'm assuming you still have a copy of the label that you can maybe email to me later. I'd love to see it. What was that process like for you to do that? That's so courageous and brave to start a wine company. Thank you for saying that. I guess the time when you're doing it, you don't think that. Otherwise, gosh, why would we do anything? You know, looking back, the risks are just so crazy. But I think 
I felt so strongly and passionately about wanting to innovate this change in a space that was so traditional, was so stuck in, but this is how we always do things. You know, you've got to get a wine score. You have to have some old white man approve that your wine is good enough for it to be written about in the wine media. You've got to have a certain winemaker and have your grapes be from a certain appellation. And I thought that's just absolutely ridiculous. Absolutely not. You have got to have a wine that people like. And if your palate loves wine that is $10 a bottle, fantastic. You get to drink that $10 bottle wine every night. What a shame if you only like $10,000 bottles of wine, because how often will you be able to drink those? You know, I think that it's just so intimidating the way the wine world created their community and allowed people in. And I just didn't like that. I wanted women to feel comfortable. So I started hosting these, we call them wine ninja classes. And I educated people from YouTube. Facebook invited me down to their campus, Forbes magazine, CNBC. And to do these really interactive wine tastings to really unpack how people could speak about wine. And I realized for women, you know, she who owns the wine list owns the world. And in New York City, so much business is done, you know, at these business dinners. And the assumption that the wine list is given to your male colleague, and now everyone assumes how cultured he must be and how knowledgeable he must be because he picked a beautiful bottle of Chianti, is just ridiculous. And I thought, what if we could shift the power and have women take that wine list with authority, make a decision at the table, and really show this small and subconscious leadership quality that may put her in a different light next to her peers in those business dinner settings. And, you know, I think that those workshops I was hosting, you know, were really helpful for a lot of women to just find their voice. And they realized if they could say a little thing about wine, then they could feel comfortable saying a lot. And I loved doing that. So for me, getting into wine, you know, it felt very natural. You know, I had my corporate job. I was going there Monday to Friday, working for a big sports agency. And on the side, I worked for San Francisco's oldest wine company. I, I literally went in there and said, look, I don't know anything about wine. I love it. I'm interested. Would you let me be your intern if you let me ask the dumb questions and just learn? And so for two years on weekends and during holidays, I would help pack the shelves. I would help with their ordering. I got to meet a ton of California's top winemakers and collectors. And I just learned a ton. And after two years, I thought, it's time. I'm going to start my own wine company and wine label and create a premium experience that feels fresh and new, welcomes women in, and is not just beholden to the old rules of this industry. I feel like this is a pivotal moment and you're thinking about who you were as a woman, as a businesswoman, as an artist, as a career person. Somehow, somewhere you saw something and you went through it. And I'm wondering if it was a person or did you just have blinders on and you just kept going? I mean, what was that pivotal moment? I think it, it honestly comes back to consistency. Don't stop. Do not stop. Just keep building. Just keep growing. Just keep learning. You know, it's that military training. You know, I don't know how to stop. And that can be a good and bad thing too, honestly. But I can't stop. You know, I built David Family. And after 12 years, we just closed our last vintage, sold our last bottle because now everything with Mavion and my other businesses are really kind of kicking into gear. You know, I'm always running multiple engines at the same time. So you just 
closed your wine company, which is amazing. Congratulations. I mean, that's it's a huge victory. I don't know if you celebrated or how you celebrated, but as you were running your wine company, is this when you also launched your new venture? Because I feel like you're an artist, you're an entrepreneur, you're a businesswoman, you are also a mother and a wife, correct? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> you are a sister. My goodness, what in the heck is going on here? So David is finished and then you moved into what? So actually, no. So David family was running. I'd actually started two other businesses during that time. And so running multiple companies for a number of years, I started the Accessory Junkie in 2016 while David family was still, you know, fully up and running and wine is being shipped all over the world and to restaurants. And I guess I don't know how to live without always pushing the engine at full speed. I actually really enjoy laying in bed at night thinking about marketing campaigns or new verticals of how to extend a product or partnership opportunities. Like I don't ever just think about long walks on the beach. (laughs) That's fair. Accessory Junkie was one. What was the other company? Oh, and then I had a couple of friends who I was supporting with their businesses, either as advisors or as an investor. And so I kind of grouped that as one company because it was, you know, 20% here, 50% there and kind of put it in my Michelle portfolio entrepreneur company bucket. And I think what's really important, if I'm really going to kind of take an aerial view of this, for women in business, I don't think we get the luxury to put all of our eggs in one basket. I think it's always, you know, keeping lots of plates warm in the oven. And when it's time, you know, have one ready to go. And that's what I think it's always been about, like this constant, keep everything going and ready and prepare and plan for every opportunity possible. And then that way, when it's ready and primed, you're good to go. And don't you think women are capable of that? I mean, I feel like the thing that, not all women, but I think most women undervalue their power and their ability to do multiple things. I think that there's women that work in corporate, like I have for many years, and they decide not to work in corporate anymore, and they decide to raise their families. And when you look around at all the responsibilities of a mother with a family, a lot of those things are translatable into the business world. I mean, you can easily migrate the things you're doing to manage the family to managing business. And so when you talk about women having to build multiple things at once, I believe that that really gets back to, and I don't like to think about deficit. I like to think about abundance because I think women have a lot of abundance, but I do think the space that we don't have is confidence and security that we can make it without building multiple things at once. And I say this because women we really don't have a path of total and absolute financial independence. We're still very connected to structures that were built, created and run and driven by men. So I kind of understand a little bit about when you're talking about all these things you're building, because I've done similar things where I have multiple things that are running at the same time. And I always get the question, you know, do you sleep? And I'm like, why would you ask me a question like that? Like, do I sleep? I mean, that's not important to me. That's not relevant. And yes, I absolutely do sleep. But just because I'm running 5,000 things does not mean there's something wrong with me. What would you like me to do? Would you like me to just focus on one thing? Would you like me to just calm down? Is that what you want? You want me to just calm down? You know what I mean? Yeah. I love talking to you about this because, you know, you're building really big things. So accessory junkie, I want to talk about that because 
that is connected to your new big giant platform, Mavion World. Can you talk a little bit about Accessory Junkie and did Mavion World transform from Accessory Junkie? Is it combined? Give us a little idea about what that whole world looks like. So the Accessory Junkie started with a really simple mission to uplift and support independent designers. So just what we were talking about before, like where so many people don't recognize their talent or aren't able to really make their talent a core focus, the world is full of these independent designers. They are so talented making beautiful, you know, earrings, rings, necklaces, but it's all in limited quantities. And so they can't make that a full livelihood. They still have to go and have a real job. You know, they're they're architects, they're nurses, they're teachers, any number of things. But this beautiful talent they have is on the side as they are making pieces that only a small audience can find. And so at the Accessory Junkie, we wanted to bring them together and put their pieces in front of a new global audience. So we work with over 450 designers from Greece, Colombia, Brazil, Japan, you name it, and really highlight their great work and connect them to new consumers. What we found, though, is the big problems in Web 2 couldn't be solved in Web 2. (laughs) It took Web 3 to do that. And so Mavion World is solving the problems that Web 2 could not. How are you finding your artists? I mean, you're talking about, you know, reaching to artists, all women all over the world, locating artists like that can be challenging for people that don't have the experience to do that. And the other piece around this is when you're locating these artists, I'm sure, you know, you're probably trying to understand how to negotiate with them for ownership and IP, but what's your process to locate these amazing artists? We wanted to go and work with locally made, sustainable, ethical designers. And so we physically would travel to all these quarters. You know, you can't find them online. You physically traveled? Like you actually flew on airplanes mm-hmm. and traveled to people? Jumped on planes so from 2016 through literally March 12, 2020, the day before the international borders closed. We were actually in Mexico City when that happened. But from Iceland to Mexico City to you know small beach towns outside of Byron Bay, we traveled every corner and found these artisans working from their home studios, working on the hidden hillsides of the Greek islands. And we saw firsthand their love and passion for their design and the handcrafted nature of how every single piece was made. And, you know, 100% of these designers are women, people of color or LGBT. They don't have the resources to create SEO strategies. They don't have huge marketing budgets, but they have an abundance of talent that the world needs to see. And we made it our mission to be the people to help them do that. And how did they get to you? I mean, were you going by word of mouth marketing? Were you going to flea markets? Were you looking at Instagram chat conversations? I mean, how did you get to these individual specialized, passionate artists? All of the above. We would, of course, research whatever we could online, but that's the whole problem. They're not really online or if they are, it's in such a tough Hard to find way that, you know, you didn't get a lot of information. So going in market, we would go to local stores, go to local markets, talk to design schools. We would talk to consumers on the street. I love what you're wearing. You know, find out who are the local designers they love to support and really follow the breadcrumbs into these designer communities. And what we would find is they're very supportive of each other. So if we found one designer 
in Mexico City, we would then find 20. They would connect us to their friend or their sister's cousin's brother, you know, who lived next door to someone else. And really, they would welcome us in because no one had ever paid attention to them, let alone come into their country actively looking for them and wanting to see their collection and wanting to share their story and buy their pieces. They welcomed us with such open arms that we became, I think, a real trusted insider into their networks. And it became this beautiful relationship that we built with each and every one of them. And when you were going all over the world, finding these artists, building a larger community, your focus was 100% on this? Or were you also working on other things at the same time? Because I know as a former art buyer, because I used to do a lot of art buying when I worked in corporate, and I still do art buying for my own company. What were you focusing on? Was this your 100% focus? I feel like in some ways, when I hear what you're describing, you remind me of some of the artist agents that go out and look for artists to represent, to then take their work and pitch them to large clients. But you were actually looking for them for yourself. You couldn't have been doing anything else. Yeah, this was where David family was now kind of, I won't say running on its own, but required minimal handholding. You know, the wine company had great restaurants and clients. So it was really set up to kind of work and be a little more autonomous. This was building a whole new baby, creating a whole new engine, a new platform, a new model. So we were working with these designers to curate their pieces. We would pay and buy the pieces up front from them. And then we would then launch them on our website or with our partner Nordstrom. We realized Nordstrom was also hungry to share beautiful, handmade, small production items to their customers and to be able to be a catalyst for these independent designers where they could never get into Nordstrom on their own. Their production was far too small, the compliance, the legal, the shipping, the language barriers, the currency that would just cripple their ability to ever do a deal with Nordstrom. We could do that for them. So for us, Nordstrom could never order 10 earrings from one designer and 10 earrings from somebody else, but they could order one big order from us and we would go and get you know, 10 products from hundreds of different designers and put that all in one collection. Did you ever direct any of the artists? If you would say to them, you know, Nordstrom, assuming they know Nordstrom, and you'd say to them, Nordstrom loves this particular piece, you know, we'd love for you to maybe explore this. I mean, did you ever become more of an art director leader in that space? Or did you just let the women create their own and you just would sort of stand back and watch? The latter. We would never give them direction. We allowed them to be the true artists they wanted to be. We found you. You've got beautiful work. Do your beautiful work. And we will show Nordstrom what you've done as you create it. You know, we are not going to put in our prescribed views on what you should or shouldn't do. Wow. You are such a powerful woman. Tell me, where does the name Mavion World come from? Where did you invent that name? And how did Accessory Junkie become a part of that, if it is a part of it? It is. So from the Accessory Junkie, we saw great things in Web2. But what we also saw was the big limitation that you can't scale scarcity. So it doesn't matter how hard these designers work. If they're making 50 of one kind of earring, once those 50 earrings are sold, they're gone. That's a finite amount of transactions and it's done and they have to go and make more. With Web3, attaching NFTs allows us to create scale, an endless flow of scarcity from those 50 earrings. And here's how it works. And then I'll describe where the name Mavion came from. 
by having these NFTs, we feature some of these earrings or necklaces in the artwork. So Ginger, let's say you've got a Mavion NFT and you've got some gold earrings in your artwork and I have a silver necklace in mine. From time to time, we'll announce that, hey, everyone who has the gold earrings, you're going to get the physical earrings if you're an NFT holder. Amazing. You've got now the physical piece that you can wear in real life. But you're also going to get the AR filter. So the AR filter you can wear across your socials on Instagram, TikTok. And then we're also going to do gaming partnerships. So now those earrings can be a digital asset with any number of games that people buy units for their skin. And that kind of income, every time a unit is sold through a gaming or metaverse collaboration, goes back to the royalties that we pay these independent designers. So our designers are going to receive perpetual royalties from these NFTs. They only ever have to make 50 pairs of earrings. But those digital assets can be infinite through gaming and through AR filters and other things as we continue to build those collaborations. Wow. And for my listeners on my show here, I do need you to go look up what is an NFT and what is VR or virtual reality and things like this in order to get some education and knowledge around some of the things that Michelle's talking about. That would take an entire show to really get deep into <laughs> yeah. what an NFT is. And I mean, that's not something that I want you on the show to talk about. That's not why you're here. So I love this. And Part of your platform, which I love, and I cannot remember for the life of me how I even came across you. I just feel like one day, Michelle, you showed up in my feed and I suddenly was like, okay, I need to follow this woman because she's speaking my language. She's speaking about independence for women and helping them learn and make money and grow and to be better and all these things. These artists that you're working with, are you helping them learn the same way you're helping someone like me learn about the space? Oh, absolutely. You know, this is a foreign language to so many people and definitely to our artists. You know, as I said before, our artists had a hard enough time figuring out e-commerce and SEO strategies. NFTs are a whole new foreign language to understand. So again, for us, however we can make it easy and streamline their ability to participate in Web3, then great. That's our job. For us, it's about inclusivity and giving all these designers the tools they need to reach more people and to be successful so that they don't have to have their other job. If their talent could be their main livelihood, then great, we've won. So how do you measure the impact you're having on the artist? Because I am like you, I believe in protecting the artist. I believe the artist needs to be paid all the time. I always side with the artist, especially when it comes to their intellectual property and their ownership. But I mean, what would you suggest your impact is on the education side of the artist? Have you been helping them learn about the value of their intellectual property and protecting it? You know, what are you doing in that space? And how many artists do you think you've reached? And as a follow-up to that, you know, I'm assuming and imagine that this has been life-changing for them. Well, we're just getting started. So not life-changing yet, but all the infrastructure is being put in place. You know, we are just launching the NFTs right now. But you touched on IP, which is really important. That's also an issue that could not be solved in Web 2. We definitely saw, and everyone's seen it, you know, independent artists are constantly having their original designs ripped off by big manufacturers. And there's nothing to stop that. In Web 3, blockchain provides verified timestamps. 
So when we put a design in our NFTs of an artist's work, it is now verified and timestamped that that design is theirs. That original design existed and is theirs from this point forward. So we can't stop people from copying others, but we can now provide indisputable proof and evidence that they were the original owners of this design and at least gives them an opportunity if they ever need to go after them to be able to do so more successfully. Gosh, there's an entirely parallel universe of opportunity that I didn't know existed. And Michelle, you are one of the women that is leading other women to this open path of there is another world out there, which is why I love the name Mavion World, because I feel like it explains to me that there is another world. So the story of Mavion is we thought about what is it that we have always resonated with? The idea of maverick and maven. We love that those are gender neutral terms. To be a maverick or a maven means that you are pioneering a path that hasn't been gone down before, that you are unafraid to discover something new, to be a leader in that space. And so that kind of mindset, we just put on the table, maverick and maven. And then we talked about the idea of what we're delivering here, you know, a small piece of the world, you know, for our consumer who might be in, you know, Michigan, who can't ever get to Iceland or to Croatia, but maybe we could deliver a small piece of that into their world. Wouldn't that be magical? And so the idea of, gosh, the dream, the dream would be to have your own plane, wouldn't it? To have your own plane that you could travel anywhere in the world whenever you wanted to feel connected to others, to different cultures, to different people. And the literal translation from my plane in French is mon avion. So with Maverick, Maven, and mon avion, Mavion was really born to represent those concepts. Wow. I mean, you really understand the power of brand and personal branding and the power of individual branding with artists. And I love that because I think many artists don't want to be marketers. They don't want to think about business. They don't want to think about making money. They don't want to think about having to ask people to buy their things to make money. And you're bridging all these gaps for artists. I mean, artists are coming from multiple places in their early lives. Some are coming from, you know, beauty and sunshine and rolling hills and others are coming from very deep trauma or real extreme need. And you're helping a lot of artists, like you said, in far-flung places that really haven't been able to be exposed to the tools of technology to figure out how can I actually make money doing this and not lose my spirit in the process. And I really do love this. My big, big question is, why are you doing all this? You know, every woman that is working in corporate business money spaces, Michelle, and this is no shade on women that are not doing the hard, 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 super, super hard work of community building and trying to help women get free. Cause I feel like that's what you're doing. That's how I see what you're doing. But if you would share, what is your why? Because you came from what sounds like a strong family. Your mother was a powerhouse in her own right. It's not like, you know, you're the child of Gloria Steinem, right? The American revolutionary. So what's your why behind your work for women, creative women, women in business? What is it? I grew up thinking that I could do anything as long as I tried and what a wonderful journey this life will be to figure out what I was capable of. I want everyone, especially women, to know what they're capable of. 
And it, it kills me that the one thing holding women back from finding out what they are truly able to do to reach their full potential is money. The only thing. Think about why women don't leave unhappy marriages, money. Think about why women don't start businesses, money. Think about what's holding these artists back, as you even just mentioned before, that they're even made to feel shamed, that they want to be compensated for their pure talent that can't be replicated, that big companies would happily copy, but they feel embarrassed or not worthy to ask for the money that they deserve. Because it's not about the money, it's about the resources that money allow them to keep doing what they're doing. If you notice, successful women don't stop doing what they're doing because they have money. They use it to do more things. And I want everyone to do more things. Do as many things as you are able to that bring you joy, that help you realize what you are capable of doing. I love that. And I always tell people when you pay a woman, she will feed her family first. Then she will walk around the neighborhood and help. The next thing you know, she's got the whole town covered and everybody's eating. So it's absolutely true when you insist and ensure that women in your community, in your place of work, your employees, your network, when you're feeding each other, when you're feeding women, they will bring the entire world with them. And that's why I love the name of your company. It's absolutely perfect. I want to know what is happening right now with Mavion World in terms of the mint that's going on right now. And I know people are saying, what is a mint? Because my audience is in a one-on-one space, most of them. And I appreciate that. And I want everybody that's listening to go out and ask the question, what is an NFT mint? But Michelle is in the middle of a massive launch. And so it's just such a wonderful opportunity to talk to Michelle because she is so incredibly, ridiculously busy, but this is how you live. But tell me what's going on right now with the Mint and the process and what's the exciting juice happening. And I have to disclose, which I absolutely completely forgot until you mentioned it. I actually did Mint. I did Mint what? one. I'm so excited. I did. I cannot wait to see what I've got, right? Because it's it's uh, it, the reveal hasn't happened. And I've brought some other people along with as well. And hopefully they've gotten an opportunity to Mint. But what's happening right now with the Mint? So good. Okay. Well, really quickly, for those who are looking for an easy resource, you can go to wagmewithmichelle.com, W-A-G-M-I with Michelle. Wagme stands for we all going to make it. It's a, a very important term in Web3 for women. Wagme, you are in, a, in an all-inclusive safe space. I created a really simple handbook. It gets you through the first 90 days. It just tells you what is an NFT, how to open a wallet, how do you buy an NFT? Why would you want to buy an NFT? So just as a quick little cheat sheet to add to your resources as you Google what these things are, I hope that is helpful. For Mavion, we just launched this week our pre-sale. And that's been fantastic to see people all over the world minting our NFTs. We have 5,000 in total. And when they mint an NFT, it means it's being added to the blockchain for the first time. The public sale for these NFTs just started like two hours ago. So you can go to Mavion.world. You can click to mint your own, very own Mavion NFT. And in 48 hours, it gets revealed. You'll see what it looks like. You'll see which accessory yours is featuring and which designer you are supporting. 
and you'll be a part of a great community of people truly all over the world, most of whom are women, most of whom are minting their first NFT for the first time. So I'm really proud that we are one by one holding everyone's hand to bring people who are interested into Web3. I love it. I'm really excited about this. And I also love all the platforms you're on. The WAGME platform, of course, is amazing. And the resources that you're sharing are important and integral to helping women understand how they can be in this space to make money. Because frankly, Michelle, let's just make it plain. Women are not in the space. We are not participating. We're not building. We don't have female engineers that are actually building these smart contracts. So and smart contracts is another conversation that for those that are listening, you'll have to look it up. What is a smart contract? But there's a lot of push to bring women into the space. It's just a little bit harder for us because we don't control our own money. So some of the things that we're talking about here are, you know, inherently a little bit of a risk and we're definitely not providing any financial information to anybody that's listening. This space is new. It's creative. It is absolutely game changing the ways that we do business. And you have to proceed with caution. I jumped into the space because the work that I do through my agency, Burt Creative, I have to know what's happening in the world of technology because my clients are technology clients. And even my small business clients and mid-market clients and women leader clients, you know, they need to know. And so it's my responsibility to help them know what I'm doing and what they need to know so that they can continue to make money in the businesses that they're in. I want to ask you a couple of very basic questions around, you know, things that you like and don't like. And you're going to laugh at some of these questions, okay? Because some of them are kind of goofy, but I am curious. Do you eat cereal and what's your favorite one? (laughs) (laughs) I do not eat cereal. I do not have a favorite one. You know what? I had a feeling. I was like, you know what? She's going to say she doesn't eat cereal. (laughs) Why don't you eat cereal? What is the issue with cereal? I know Americans eat a lot of cereal, but what's going on here? Why don't you eat it? I'm a smoothie kind of girl. My breakfast of choice is just a green smoothie. There's no good reason. I've just always (laughs) lent towards the smoothie section. (laughs) Not even like Lucky Charms or like, you know, checks. Okay. All right. And what about movies? Do you even have time to watch movies? And if you have, what's the most recent film you've watched, even if it's documentary? I don't usually have a lot of time, but I did just watch the movie Encanto with my children and I'm just, I'm obsessed. Everyone's singing the Bruno song. I'm obsessed with the pressure song. The song from Louisa with the pressure. Mm -hmm. That's my workout jam now. I hit the weights hard and start going into crazy cardio when the pressure song comes on. And I love that because you do sometimes share your workout routine on Instagram, which I think is great. You know, it, it definitely, I mean, listen, I mean, all of us have been in a pandemic for a couple of years and I can officially declare that I have dropped my pandemic weight. I'm feeling really good about myself. I was admiring myself in the reflection at the Starbucks yesterday as I passed by thinking to myself, wow, I worked, <laughs> literally worked my butt off. Okay. So now what about books? So you have a book that you've just published, you know, which is a basic 101 on NFTs, which is absolutely phenomenal. Aside from that book, that handbook, are you reading anything right now that's jumping out at you that's really interesting and cool? The handbook is not actually a book. It's like nine slides because I know that women have no time. So I want to respect that precious resource. It's nine slides that you can download as a PDF. So definitely not a book because... To answer your question, 
I don't have time to read books. I love books. I cannot tell you the last time I read a book. I think it was probably before I had children. I think after having kids. Oh my kids, goodness. Are you serious? You haven't read a book since you've had kids? I will read online chapters or excerpts of books, but I don't think I've read from cover to cover an entire book. I have not had a cover I to love cover. You. You're so funny. <laughs> I feel like planet Earth maybe just like, was I just voted off the planet? <laughs> You're just like, I don't have it. I, I just don't have it in me. I love it. <laughs> I don't. No, I mean, I hear what you're saying because I'm the same. Like, I feel like I have limited time to read. I admit it, but I do find some time to read. So, I mean, the last book that I completed was The Sympathizer by Viet Nguyen, and he won a Pulitzer Prize for it. And I actually had him on my podcast last year, but, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning books are definitely deep. And I had to use all of my concentration to stay with it because you're right. I'm a mom. I got three kids and I'm married and I have to run a household and a business. And it's a lot. It's definitely a lot. Okay. Last question. So you're not allowed to say your favorite NFT is Mavion, okay? So what is your favorite NFT project collection right now? Easiest answer, women and weapons. And I've got to tell you why, because when I first spoke to Sarah Bauman, the founder of this project, firstly, she was one of the first female NFTs that launched last year. But second of all, when you look at this artwork, it's very kind of like 1960s artwork inspired. And it's almost like you're choosing an image of, you know, how you would like to look if you were in a Kill Bill movie. It's a very fierce looking woman. And they've got like nunchucks and strange looking brass knuckles and things. But what really struck me so deeply was when she said that the best weapon a woman can have is education. And a percentage of all of the sales and all the secondary market sales are going to the Malala Fund. And she's really supporting and driving home a huge effort to support education for girls around the world. And so I love Women and Weapons for that reason. I will never stray. I love my Women and Weapons NFTs and I will hold on to them forever. I love it. I think they look really great. I've missed the boat on that. I find them to be a little bit out of my price point at this point, which is great for people that have actually been able to mint it. I love the colors. There was one I loved a lot. It was a redder faced brown woman with like purplish hair and a really interesting like purpley kind of background. It was really, really, really beautiful. I love that project as well. I love that collection. And I think one day at one point I'll be able to jump in and grab one. But I'm glad that you brought that up because sometimes I think to myself, when I ask a question like that, please comment back to me with something that's not so super famous. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm not going to even mention like any of the big, big famous ones because that's not totally fair. But I'm glad that you brought up a collection that is kind of well-known, but not so over the top that you can't approach it still. Yeah. Yeah. Like, thankfully, their floor price is more like hundreds of dollars. So yeah, definitely, you know, not cheap, but there are a lot that are thousands. You know, when you've got the cheapest NFT for a collection being, you know, $10,000, that's really hard for everyone to easily dip their toe in the ocean at that price point. Oh, absolutely. It's definitely harder for women because women don't necessarily have control of the bank account. I mean, so that's $10,000. Is That's a lot of change. This was such an amazing conversation, Michelle. I'm so grateful that we were able to speak for everyone please look at my show notes and you can find all the links to all the connections that Michelle has built. She's making an ecosystem. Obviously, listening to Michelle talk, this is not the end. This is the beginning of her entire world, starting with Mavion, of course, but there's going to be more to come. 
Michelle is a force of nature. She's a force of nature. If you're not following her on Instagram and Twitter, you are missing out on the joys of this new universe that she's building along with many other people. I'm very grateful to be a part of it. I'm grateful that I'm a part of Michelle's world and enjoying watching her from afar with her amazing family, her amazing brother, (laughs) her really, really cute, 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 cute children. Michelle, I appreciate you being here. And everybody, please join us next time on the Honest Field Guide podcast. I am Ginja. I'm Michelle. And we will see you and talk with you next time. Original music is written by and provided courtesy of Utah Carol. Follow Honest Field Guide on Instagram and Twitter. The opinions expressed on the Honest Field Guide are opinions only 